Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than looking at movies in terms of two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them thinking about what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. And this week, we're going to be looking at 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oftentimes, when we're developing the story of a film, when we're developing the plot of a film, um, we're afraid that we're going to run out of story. We're afraid that we don't have the right story, we don't have enough story, we don't have a good enough story, that our idea doesn't work, that we don't have the right ending, that we, we don't know what we're building, and we get scared. And we start to look outside of ourselves for structure. We start to look outside of ourselves for plot. We start to look outside of ourselves to try to figure out what happens. Maybe we look at another movie. Maybe we look at a screenwriting book. Maybe we look at a hero's journey archetype. Um, maybe, God forbid, we look at a software program that pretends it can tell us what happens in our story. Maybe we look to friends for advice. But none of these places are where we really want to be looking. Where we want to be looking is inside the content of the screenplay itself. We want to be looking inside of what we have already written to figure out where we need to go. All of the answers for where you need to go in your story already exist in the initial pages of your screenplay. The structure of your movie can grow organically simply by looking at the things that exist in your movie and saying, if this is true, what else must also be true? And if this is true, what else must also be true? And if this is true, what also must be true? Now, just a warning that there are a lot of spoilers ahead in this podcast. In fact, it's impossible to talk about 10 Cloverfield Lane without giving some spoilers. Because the concept that I want to talk about with 10 Cloverfield Lane is the concept, everything possible must happen. What's wonderful about 10 Cloverfield Lane is that we never know exactly what is true and what is not. That in fact, we are dropped directly into the experience of the main character. The main character, Michelle, has just left her husband at the beginning of the movie. She is driving away down a road. Something hits her car, and the next thing she knows, she wakes up chained to a bed in an underground bunker with an IV in her arm being nursed back to health by what seems like a totally deranged man, Howard, played by John Goodman. And Howard tells Michelle a bunch of really disturbing things, none of which seem that they can possibly be true. Howard tells Michelle that the entire United States has been attacked. Howard tells Michelle that the air is so contaminated that it will rot your flesh right off the bone. Howard tells Michelle that it may be aliens that have attacked their country, that it may be mutant worms, that it certainly isn't American, whatever these weapons are. Howard seems to have a thousand crazy theories, and he does not seem mentally stable at all. He seems dangerous. After all, what kind of man rescues someone only to chain them to a bed? He has strangely aggressive habits and neuroses. And it seems more likely that she has just been kidnapped and taken prisoner. A fact that seems even more clear when she sees through the portal window of the underground bunker's air chamber. 
the dent in his car and realized that he did not, as he claimed, save her from the road, that he in fact was the person who ran her off the road in the first place. So we are dumped right into her horror. We are entering the movie in her shoes, thinking like she does, that she's been kidnapped by a madman and now is somehow going to have to outsmart him within the rules of the world that he's created. A man mad enough that he has spent his whole life building an underground bunker, waiting for an alien attack that he is now convinced has happened. Because whatever can happen must happen, because we build our movies by saying, if this is true, what is also true? We don't want to live in that beat forever. We don't want to spend seven acts. We don't want to spend the whole structure of the movie waiting for her to finally find the right escape plan. Instead, we want to say, if this is true, what else is also true? If it's true that at the very beginning, she completely distrusts him and thinks that he is a madman, what is the furthest she could go from that in her journey? What is the furthest journey she could take in relation to that idea? And of course, the furthest she could go from that is to start to trust him. And that's the next movement of the piece. How do you take a person and how do you take us, the audience, who have been programmed from the very beginning to say, this person is dangerous, this person is not trustworthy, this person is not stable, to start to trust him. So how do we start to do it? Well, the first thing is Emmett. There's a guy who happens to be there with them. And at first, we think that that guy has been attacked by John Goodman's character, by Howard. But when she meets the guy, the guy seems really sweet. The guy tells her it's his own fault that he got hurt. Emmett tells her that he forced his way in, that he helped Howard build this, that he saw the attack, and that when the attack happened, he knew that this was the only chance he had of saving his own life. Much like us, Michelle is confused by Emmett's story. It's hard to reconcile what he's saying. After all, all of her instincts about Howard, everything she knows about the universe suggests that Howard has somehow duped Emmett, that Emmett's made a mistake. After all, Emmett doesn't seem that smart. We could tell he's nice, but he doesn't seem that smart. He's maybe been tricked. He's maybe made a mistake. He maybe doesn't understand. Maybe Howard has staged something. And we, like Michelle, are asking ourselves, what really happened? What really happened? What really happened? And we're rooting for Michelle as she tries to steal Howard's keys, as she tries to sneak her way out of the house. We are rooting for Michelle when she sees the car pull up outside, when she sees the headlights, when she sees the woman come out. And then we are as shocked and terrified as Michelle when we see that woman's face being eaten away by the poison gas in the atmosphere, when that woman, crazed, starts to bang her head against the portal door, and we start to wonder, is all this real? Could it actually be true? Has some kind of attack happened? Is there some kind of chemical gas in the air? 
is Howard really who we imagined him to be? Or is he, in fact, the savior that he believes himself to be for them? Even our assessment and her assessment of Howard as a character starts to change because despite the fact that she, in order to escape, has cracked his head with a bottle, cut him so deeply that he needs stitches, despite the fact that she has stolen his keys, almost exposed them all to the poison gas, Howard doesn't react with violence. Howard reacts with a very heartfelt confession where he admits that he lied to her, that he ran her off the road, not on purpose, but because he was so scared that he was driving like a madman. And at that moment, he seems so vulnerable and so truthful, it's hard not to believe Howard. We're so surprised by his lack of violence, by his forgiveness, by the way he blames himself, that we feel bad for judging him, just like she feels bad for judging him. If that is true, then what else must be true? In the next movement of the piece, we, like Michelle and Emmett, start to trust Howard. We start to root for them to survive this attack, to build a family underneath the ground. We start to feel like maybe we were wrong in our judgment, just like she begins to believe that maybe she is wrong in her judgment. And if that's true, then what else can be true? What is the furthest she can go from there? Well, the air filtration system breaks and only Michelle is small enough to crawl through the ductwork in order to pull the lever to restart the system. But when she finds herself in that air filtration room, it's more than just an air conditioner that she finds. What she finds is the word help scratched on the inside of the window. What she finds is a bloody earring that matches a photo of a person that Howard said was his daughter. And she starts to believe that maybe Howard is the man she thought he was at the very beginning. That maybe he was unstable. Maybe he is dangerous. Maybe he is the kind of person who would kidnap a woman and chain her to a bed. Maybe even rape her and torture her. Maybe even kill her. In an early movement in the movie, Emmett convinces Michelle that Howard is safe. In a later movement of the movie, Michelle convinces Emmett that Howard is dangerous. Emmett recognizes the girl from the photo, and no, it is not Howard's daughter. It is 
something much more terrifying than that. It's a girl who disappeared from their neighborhood. And Emmett and Michelle realize that they need to escape from this underground bunker, that the man that they're staying with may be capable of anything, that as dangerous as the outside is, they somehow have to find a way out. They somehow have to find a way to escape. Early on in the movie, we have scenes of bonding between these three where they're truly enjoying each other's company, feeling safe with each other. On the other side of the air filtration system experience of discovering the secret about Howard's past, Howard is feeling better about their relationship than ever. He's celebrating the joy of great teamwork, the beauty of what they've created together at the moment that they are doubting him the most. He's feeling at his most safe at the moment that they're feeling the most dangerous. And you can see that this is a nice riff on the things that have happened in the past when he is feeling threatened and unappreciated by them. What's the furthest he can go from that? Feeling completely safe and part of a team. And this movement culminates in that fabulous guessing game in which Howard is desperately trying to give the clues. I know what you are sleeping. I watch you all the time. I know what you're doing. And Emmett thinks he's being accused. And Michelle realizes that Howard is simply giving the clues for Santa Claus. So we're moving Howard from a place of paranoia to a place of comfort. We're moving Michelle from a point of paranoia to a place of comfort to a place of even worse paranoia. We're moving Emmett from a place of trust, of total trust, to a place of total fear. We're building structure not by looking what's out there, but by looking what's in here. If this is true, what is also true, everything possible must happen. In the next sequence of the movie, Emmett and Michelle get caught, and Howard starts to show his dark side again. In fact, Howard starts to see, show a darker side than we even imagined till now. He confronts them with a barrel of corrosive acid and warns them that he's either going to tell them what they're doing with the objects that he's found, or he's going to put them into that barrel and let it eat their flesh away. And at that moment, Emmett makes a false confession to protect Michelle. He tells Howard that he was creating a weapon, that he did it alone, that he was trying to get the gun so that she would respect him like she respects Howard. And to our surprise, Howard seems to buy it. Howard accepts the apology. And then Howard pulls out his gun and blows Emmett's brains all over the wall. And again, you can see the movement we start at a place where Howard trusts Emmett, but doesn't trust Michelle. And we move to a place where Howard trusts Michelle, but doesn't trust Emmett. If this is true, what is also true, everything possible must happen. At the beginning of the movie, when she finds herself chained to the bed, we believe that she is kidnapped. And we start to imagine Howard 
as some kind of sexual deviant, some kind of obsessive monster who is going to rape her and torture her and hold her hostage. And over the course of the movie, we come to see him as exactly the opposite. But once the, that earring is discovered, the possibility comes alive again. And so what happens in the next movement is we get to watch Howard start to recreate his past pattern. We get to watch him try to recreate the relationship he had with the daughter who he lost. And the relationship he most likely had with the girl that he kidnapped. During the board game, we witness Howard's inability to describe Michelle as anything other than a little girl. And once Emmett is gone, he reveals that, in fact, now they can finally live the way he had planned when he saved her. He's shaved his beard, and he begins to infantilize her, to offer her ice cream, to try to build some kind of old, terrifying pattern with her. The kind of terrifying, creepy stuff that we imagined he was going to do before we went on this huge journey that changed the way we saw him. If this is true, what is also true, everything possible must happen. At the very beginning of the movie, Michelle tries to kill Howard with a sharpened crutch. Later in the movie, Michelle makes her escape using Howard's own acid against him burning the skin off of his body in a really incredible chase sequence that ends up with the underground bunker on fire and Michelle barely escaping with her life in a hazmat suit made out of a shower curtain and a gas mask made out of a Coca-Cola bottle. And just when we think we know where we are, she sees a flock of birds fly overhead and realizes that the air is not contaminated at all. And we start to remember, like she starts to remember, what we thought at the very beginning of the movie, that Howard made all of this up, that none of this was real. We start to believe, as she starts to believe, that none of this is real. We watch as she takes off her gas mask, as she breathes the air, as she realizes that she stepped into Howard's mind, that somehow she came to believe his crazy story. And we as the audience are right there with her in her shoes, breathing that sigh of relief with her. So grateful that we knew it all along and waiting to figure out how he orchestrated all this madness. And of course, that's the moment where she sees the alien ships for the first time. And they are as terrifying as Howard imagined them to be. Down all the way to the mutant worms. And what is so satisfying and so gratifying about that moment is that this is the one thing that even we didn't think was possible. That this is the one thing that was brought up that even we didn't think could happen. That the writer and the director have squeezed every last drop out of everything that they've written. 
and manifested that in a totally shocking ending that at the same time feels totally inevitable. Now, that's not to say that every movie needs to end with an alien invasion. That doesn't mean that just because you have a character who's afraid of aliens, that aliens have to appear in your movie. But what it does mean to say is that in relation to your theme, you want to squeeze every last bit of juice out of everything you've written. That in relation to your theme, you want to say, if Howard believes in aliens, is it possible that aliens are true? If Howard longs for his daughter, is it possible he's trying to recreate that relationship? If Howard seems really dangerous at the beginning, is it possible that he can be even more dangerous at the end? If this all seems like a ruse at the beginning, can it seem like a ruse at the end? And can it also turn out to be true? In fact, the original script, which was called Cellar, um, actually does not end with aliens at all. The original script ends with Michelle escaping, realizing the air is clean, taking off her gas mask in relief, breathing deeply, and then seeing over the skyline the ruined remains of Chicago and realizing that everything Howard told her was true. And some critics have actually argued that that, that was a better ending, that uh, that the aliens were somehow too strange or tacked on or simply an attempt to force this movie to be a sequel to Cloverfield. And I, as you've probably figured out by now, felt exactly the opposite. I felt like the aliens were the perfect moment because they grew so organically out of everything that had been built because they proved so completely the premise and the theme of the movie, which is you can never actually know what's true or what's real about a person. That you can actually never know exactly what to believe and exactly what is right. That even the maddest among us may actually know the truth and even the sanest among us may actually be telling ourselves lies. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter if you end with aliens or if you end with the destroyed city of Chicago. That is an artistic decision. What matters is that you suck the marrow, you suck every last bit of juice out of everything that you've built. That you build your structure not by tacking things on at the end, but by looking at what's already there. By asking yourself if that's true, what else is true? By pushing your characters to the furthest extremes of how they can change. And by making sure that everything possible does, in fact, happen. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to study with me in New York City, live online, as part of our international retreats or our one-on-one -on -one ProTrack mentorship program, you can visit my website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Archives and transcripts of this podcast are also available on the Write Your Screenplay website. And if you'd like, you can subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Write Your Screenplay. <laughs>